If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Peace Media about her book, Global Norms and Local Action, The Campaigns to End Violence Against Women in Africa, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. This book bridges the literatures in international relations, gender politics, African studies, and public administration to examine the micro foundations of norm implementation. Peace, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. I am Associate Professor in Politics at the University of Bristol. Um, Global Norms and Local Actions, the Campaign to Advancing Women in Africa is my first book. Um, I am also a novelist, so I, I write fiction as well. And uh, my first novel is Only Wife, and the next one comes out uh, next June. Um, and I work broadly on gender-based violence, on norm implementation, um, and I also teach about uh, gender-based violence and gender insecurity more broadly. And you're too humble to mention that you received much critical acclaim for your first novel, um, but we're here to talk about global norms and local action. Uh, so can you tell us how you came to write this book? Yes. So I, I lived in Liberia in the early stages of the, the Civil War. And so from a very early age, I was aware of violence against civilians. I was aware of the how people experience armed conflict. And so I've always had this interest, this general interest in, in studying armed conflict and its effect on people. And I also knew I wanted to, um, to study women, uh, partly because I'd, I'd heard the stories of, of many women, including um, people I knew personally. Um, but of course, it wasn't until I became a doctoral student or maybe when I started my master's that you know the personal interest began to um, kind of converge with the academic interest because when I became a student I then had the the language um, and I guess the skills to study to study this uh, this topic. And the result is a really compelling book. So the the book examines a particular norm, the international women's justice norm. What does that phrase mean? Yes. So when I, I started doing this work, I noticed that over time, and I would say across Africa, especially from the early 1990s, there's been a focus on accountability, on ending impunity for um, gender-based violence. Um, and a lot of it is it's partly international in that some of it is coming from the UN and from initiatives like um, the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, 
um, that sought to address, among other things, violence against women in conflict and after conflict. But what this norm did and what I noticed was there were several international policy documents from the African Union, from regional organizations like SADC, the South African Development um, Committee, um, that uh, sought to basically move the conversation beyond, um, you know, gender-based violence being something that is addressed outside of the criminal justice system and something that requires um, offenders to be held accountable. And so you, you, I saw this in international policy documents, international instruments. I saw this also in just the creation of um, organizations and institutions. And so what's the, the, the message coming from international organizations, but also from women's movements um, within countries was, we need to hold offenders accountable, but also we need to treat victims with sensitivity. We need to end the re-victimization of survivors because it was very common. So for example, when I, I did interviews in Cote d'Ivoire, for example, and they said, you know, before before we had a specialized unit, it was very common that if a woman had experienced rape, she would come to the police station and the police will begin questioning her at the front desk in the presence of other people. And I mean, that is just so traumatizing. And so what this international uh, justice norm was basically saying is that we need to end that. We need to hold offenders accountable, but we also need to treat victims better. Thank you. Now, the, as I understand it, and please correct me if I've misunderstood, the book uh, deals with one practice or one technique for operationalizing this norm, uh, which is specialized criminal justice sector mechanisms like specialized police and gendarmerie units. And you argue that there are three stages of implementation. There is creation, institutionalization, and street-level implementation. And that these three stages are influenced in turn by international pressure, domestic pressure, and domestic political and institutional conditions. Now, it's a very, very nuanced argument, um, but can you explain it to us in sort of general terms? Yes. So I, I realized very early on that if I wanted to understand what states were, states were doing, I would have to really go beyond what is on paper. Because states will sign on to international agreements that say we are going to pass laws, we're going to create institutions. And if I realized that if I wanted to conduct a study based only on what states had agreed to, the picture would actually be very, very rosy, and it would show that you know, post-conflict states or states in general were really doing an excellent job at addressing gender-based violence. In fact, if I also just wanted to look at the construction of buildings that these police stations existed, these specialized mechanisms existed, it would, always, it would also give me a very positive picture of what was happening. But I realized that I needed to do more than that that I needed to look at what was happening within the institutions, what was happening in terms of the daily decisions around the creation of these institutions, but also what happened after the institutions had been created. And so I decided to study norm implementation, not as this one um, action, but I broke it down into three different things. One was a creation. And at this stage, I said, if if, if you know, a document has been signed, even if it's just a press release saying that we are creating this specialized unit, I'm going to count it as creation. And then the, the much deeper level is institutionalization. And this is formalization of the unit um, beyond writing on paper and having um, a press release. And this is saying um, that this unit is being made a key part of the police force because I was I, I was focusing on specialized police um, units. And so I was looking at things as like, um, was there a, um, 
a directorate? Was there a, a central directorate um, where there's specially trained officers and where these officers devoted to addressing gender-based violence? And did they have, did they have offices? So it, it went beyond what was written on paper to kind of in-depth analysis of what was happening within these institutions. And then I also look at the street level implementation because why is any of this important? It's just that I wanted to understand how women and and survivors of of gender-based violence more broadly were being served. Um, So at the end of the day, it wasn't only about, oh, let us see whether these institutions um, have been established and are a key part of the police force, but whether or not it was making a difference in the lives of survivors of violence. So that is why I had these three three categories or three things that I'm looking at as um, implementation. So, and what is the role of these international and domestic factors, right? Um, You know, what role do do international pressure, domestic pressure, and uh, domestic conditions play in shaping the salience and the speed of you know, these three stages that you just described. Yes. Um, So what we, what we know or what we knew then from the um, literature on international norms and norm implementation was that international actors were important and they used a variety of tools, including coercion, for example, to get states to act and to comply. Um, But we also knew that domestic actors were important and when you go beyond the IR literature to look at the gender studies literature, the African studies literature, the policing literature, the public admin literature, you get a wealth of uh, insights into how domestic actors and conditions matter. Um, but within IR literature, some of what uh, we needed to or we needed to understand was. Um, how much do domestic actors matter in comparison to international actors? But also, at what stage is uh, or are domestic actors more relevant, more impactful? So what, what we know is that domestic actors are important, international actors are important. And I wanted to know, well, at what stage are they important? And how exactly are they important? And can you have... Um, movements? Can you have institutionalization in the absence of maybe strong international pressure or strong domestic pressure? So I think those are very interesting questions to ask when it comes to the establishment of specialized police units. Um, But also when you just in study norm implementation more broadly, because I think some of this is relevant for understanding um, other areas of norm implementation. And I should just also say briefly that there really wasn't much work done on specialized policing in in Africa. So most of the literature, when I started working, focused on Latin America, especially Brazil, um, that that created the first woman's police station, I believe, in 1985. And there just wasn't much work on even just describing what... um, specialized policing when it comes to gender-based violence looked like in African countries. So this was why I I wanted to study this. And my argument and the, the key points that I, I make in the book is that international actors are very important, like we know. However, international actors matter most at the creation stage. And so that is the stage where you get the people at the top to say, we are going to create a specialized police unit. And maybe a document is signed. International actors are very important at this stage. So what I found in my comparison of uh, Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire, where Liberia had four different specialized uh, mechanisms, as opposed to Cote d'Ivoire that had one, but also Liberia had done a much better job at institutionalizing its special mechanisms in that there was a central directorate for the the women and children's protection section of the police force. Um, Police officers were specifically trained to address gender-based violence. Um, They worked 
only on gender-based violence in, in, in contrast to Cote d'Ivoire where it was normal for a police officer to, you know, in one one day work on a rape case and the next day is working on theft. Um, and because at that point, uh, gender-based violence basically was not an issue that was being given the kind of attention that it needed. Um, and so the, the question was, why did these countries differ in how they were implementing this norm? And my argument is that at the creation stage, the UN was extremely important. So the international actor, the main international actor, the UN was key to creation or the creation of these specialized uh, units. However, um, when it came to institu institutionalization, um, domestic actors, specifically the women's movement, as well as domestic conditions within and outside of the police force, um, were extremely important. So while um, international pressure remained consistently high, um, domestic pressure was not as high in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire as it was in Liberia. And my argument is that that greatly contributed to a very rapid institutionalization of the, the specialized police force in Liberia in comparison to Cote d'Ivoire. Thank you. Now, so as, as you mentioned, right, and listeners uh, now understand that the book focuses on these two countries, right, Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire. Um, so what, what led you to select these two countries and what sort of research did you do in, in, in both contexts? Um, so I adopted a kind of a very structured uh, focus comparison of these two countries. And Liberia was the country, I think, across Africa has the most specialized units. Liberia has a, or at that time, I conducted, in, I worked in Liberia in 2020, 2010 and 2011. And during this time, it had the Women and Children's Protection Section of the Police Force, which was my focus. There was Criminal Court E, and it was a court devoted exclusively to rape. There was a sexual and gender-based violence prosecution unit within um, the Ministry of Justice. And there was a gender-based violence prosecution unit that dealt with non-sexual gender-based violence also within the Ministry of Justice. So they had all of these specialized mechanisms were created after the Civil War in 2003 with the Women and Children's Protection Section, my focus, created in 2005. Um, whereas Cote d'Ivoire only had um, the gender desks created in 2014. Before the Civil War and even during the war in Cote d'Ivoire, there were what were called gender focal points. And these were individual police officers who had received some training and were in a regular police station and would... Um, deal with cases as uh, they came, but they weren't in every um, police station. Um, and it wasn't something that was formalized. Um, and like I said, it didn't have like a central directorate that was overseeing all of this action. Um, so these countries very much they differed in terms of how much had been done. Uh, but also by 2007, Liberia had established um, specialized units across the country. Um, whereas, you know, three, four years after Cote d'Ivoire had created its uh, gender desk, they were not established across all regions of the country. And uh, so there were a lot of differences, but what it allowed me to do was to compare two countries, one that seemed to have made great progress in establishing a specialized police unit and one that um, had not um, come as far in establishing its specialized unit. And I should say that in, in the book, I talk about how even with the specialized units being established, there were still many weaknesses when it, when, when it came to um, policing, when it came to addressing gender-based violence. So you know, the, the fact that the units exist or existed and were spread across the country in, in Liberia did not mean that they had you know, solved the problem and everything was going well. 
In fact, many of the police stations I, I visited in Liberia were heavily under-resourced. So yes, the institution exists, but the resources, um, you have the personnel, you have the structure, but they don't have vehicles to go to the crime scene. And they don't have money to buy petrol to put in a vehicle to go to the crime scene. Um, so I, I like to um, kind of make this distinction that the existence of these units does not mean that they work um, the way we want them to work. But what it allowed me to do is to compare two countries, one that had made more progress um, than the other. And I, it became, it became clear very quickly that I would have to spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people. Cause like I said, if I relied on what was in like policy documents and legal documents, I would not get a full picture of what was happening in the country. And so I did over 300 interviews in, um, in, in both countries. Um, and so I worked basically from like 2010 to 2017, I was collecting data. This started as my, started as my doctoral dissertation. I studied Liberia only for my dissertation. And after I then added Cote d'Ivoire as a comparative, a comparative case, um, but what I was, what I did was, I, I spent a lot of time in police stations, um, just talking to police officers, wanting to understand how they worked and why they worked the way that they worked. But also because I couldn't rely only on what the police officers told me, I had to speak with survivors of violence. I had to speak with with social workers. I spoke with women's rights act activists. I spoke with UN officials. I spoke with officials of a range, from a range of international and local um, human rights organizations, just to try to get a picture of what was happening within police stations, but also at the decision-making stage before the police, um, the units were even created. And I think that that's what makes the empirical chapter so rich uh, in this book. Um, so, you know, you've already alluded to this a little bit, but um, in, in the book, you spend quite a bit of time for each country uh, describing trends in violence against women and then the response to that. So I wonder if we could start with Liberia and if you could tell us about violence against women in that country and, and what the response to that looked like. Yes, so I wanted, I really wanted the book to give a historical picture. So I start way before the Civil War in talking about what violence against women looked like and recognizing that I, there was no data at that point. I could not really get data. So I was relying on things like um, uh, police reports from from the 80s just to get a kind of an idea of the kind of cases they were getting and um and how how frequently people were reporting these cases um so i i it, it became clear that like in i think every country there was a lot of gender-based violence violence against women physical violence sexual violence um but that most cases were not reported to the police. Um, and even when I spoke with police officers who had worked before the war, they said, I remember someone saying, well, um, I think we only dealt with, we only took seriously like severe rape cases. So this is to say that there was even like categories of rape and some were considered more serious than others. Um, and it's usually cases that involved children that were considered um, very serious. Um, so what's, from, from the documents and from the interviews, it was clear that there was violence against women, um, but there really wasn't a strong state response to it. Um, there was, and even though Liberia had been active internationally on issues of women's rights, there just wasn't much conversation around um, 
addressing gender-based violence, although there were women's groups and women's organizations that have been protesting violence against women um, during this time. Um, and of course, it was during the Civil War that violence against women became widespread. Physical violence, sexual violence became widespread. Um, a lot of it committed by armed groups. Um, and after the war ended, I spoke to activists um, and they said, well, one of the things that surprised us was we really thought that when the war ended, we would not be hearing about these horrifying cases of violence. And they said, but, you know, the war ended, they had signed a peace agreement, but we were hearing about gang rapes and people being raped and murdered. Um, and so actually after the war, after the peace agreement was signed, there were large marches by women protesting this violence. Um, and my argument, a part of what I explain in the book is that it is this kind of marches that contributed to the response that we saw from the Liberian government, um, including the transitional government, um, where um, they said, uh, there was a speech by the transitional president, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, we know these women, um, and we know how strong they were during the war, and we know how what they did to try to end the war. So we need to pay attention to what they are saying. And so there was one of the marches where um, the women marched um, to the, the office of the president and did, one of them delivered a speech talking about how the war had ended, but there was still so much rape and um, victimization of children. Um, and so that kind of contributed to the response that we saw from the government, um, where um, even though, yes, there was international pressure, yes, the UN was playing a very key role in reforming the, um, the police force, but at the same time, the fact that the women's movement in Liberia was strong, had gained recognition during the war, meant that when they spoke, people listened. So one of the things that I did in trying to compare the strength of the women's movement in Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire was look, looking at how often they were mentioned in newspapers. Um, and, and I found that the Liberian women's movement was mentioned much more both in international newspapers and local newspapers. What, what that meant was that they were visible um, and that people paid attention when they spoke and they could go to the president and make demands and they could go to the UN and make demands um, in ways that I didn't see the women's movement um, uh, making, ma making similar demands in, in Cote d'Ivoire, or at least not being given the audience because the women's movement was active in Cote d'Ivoire as well, but did not have... Um, uh, the kind of, uh, I guess, the status that would have allowed them to speak directly to the president and to make the kinds of demands that were being made, uh, be made in Liberia. And so post-conflict Liberia, violence against women remained a problem, especially uh, sexual violence. Um, and their response is one of the responses was the Women and Children's Protection Section that was created. Um, and something that I, I, I think, and speaking to one UN official who said, even when Liberia did not have the resources, they made the effort. So often they did not have, many, many of the places did not have standalone buildings. As, like Cote d'Ivoire had standalone gender deaths, um, and often the gender the the gender based violence um, office within the police force in Liberia was just a small room. They did not even have the resources to set up a standalone building with an office. But as the UN official said, the government was willing to give whatever space they had to this. To this, um, to this unit to ensure that they could do the work that they needed to do. So that was what the response looked like in, um, in, in, um, in Liberia. Cote d'Ivoire, during the war at least, did not have sexual violence on the scale that Liberia had. But 
I'm, I'm always careful when discussing this because you just don't have comparative data. Um, so much of it is based on maybe news reports and on interviews. Um, but what seems to be the case or what seems to have happened in Cote d'Ivoire was there was sexual violence, but not on the scale. In fact, violence across the board was not on the scale um, as uh, the same scale as it was in, in Liberia. Um, and after the war, the, the, the kind of movement, the, the, the pressure that we, we saw in Liberia with women's movement was just not the same in, um, in Cote d'Ivoire. And one of the things that I quickly found out when I spoke to women's rights activists was that they said, we don't want to be seen as political actors. We, we feel that if we, we make demands of the government, they might think that we are uh, supporting the opposition. And so the civil society space was very politicized in Cote d'Ivoire in a way that it wasn't in Liberia. Um, and I spoke to um, people working in NGOs in Cote d'Ivoire, activists who said, you know, instead of um, protesting, instead of lobbying the government, we've decided that we will provide services. Um, we will provide health health care for rape survivors. We'll provide counseling. We'll, we'll provide legal support. So there was almost this um, people were trying not to be involved in politics and lobbying the government and protesting and, and, and basically complaining about what was happening for many people. There was a, there was a, the fear that it will be seen as political and they will be seen as political actors and they wanted to avoid this. Um, and so of course that led to kind of a, a different response in, um, in Cote d'Ivoire. And something else that I think is also important, I mentioned briefly, was also, I think, the degree to which the UN was involved in Liberia. So the UN was, um, I think, very, very important in reforming the the police force in Liberia. Um, and I, I spoke with UN officials who said, look, what, the police force did not even exist when we got there. And that they had to build this police force up. And of course, wanting it to be better than what it was before the war. But what that meant was that the UN had access in Liberia in a way that it did not have in Cote d'Ivoire because the security sector remained um, quite strong um, and, and hadn't been, um, I would say, devastated as it was in Liberia during the war. Um, and, and for that reason, the, the, the UN did not have the same kind of access in Cote d'Ivoire, but also the UN was seen as a political actor in Cote d'Ivoire as well, in a way that it wasn't seen in Liberia. Um, there were I mean, pockets or sections of, of, of the security sector that felt like the UN had um, backed uh, different actors within the conflict in Cote d'Ivoire. And so you'd have um, supporters of uh, 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 Gbagbo who felt that, um, you know, the UN was against them. And therefore, and they, and they, some of them were in the security sector. And so there was almost this resistance. Um, and, and I also spoke with uh, some, gen, some gendarmes in, um, in Cote d'Ivoire who said, um, we, we, we think this whole thing about gender-based violence and specialized policing is because the, the UN is trying to weaken the, the, the gendarmerie, right? Um, and asking us to also include women in the gendarmerie is an attempt to weaken us. Um, and <laughs> so th th this is the kind of um, discourse that was happening Whereas you, you didn't see much of this in Liberia. People didn't think, oh, the UN is trying to destroy the police force by asking us to address gender-based violence. So the UN itself was politicized in Cote d'Ivoire in a way that it wasn't politicized in Liberia. And I think that made it relatively easier for the UN to shape the response 
But I, I, and I, I do want to underline that it wasn't the case that the UN went in and said, Liberia, do this, and it happened. Within Liberia, there was strong support for addressing gender-based violence, beginning with the women's movement, even within the police force. One of the things that happened was um, under, under President um, Sirleaf Johnson, they, for the first time, there were very senior women in the police force. And they had a key role to play in, in shaping the different uh, departments and units that were being created. And this is not to say that women always advance women's interests or that women always care about gender-based violence. But in this case, the women that were put there were aware of the problem, thought it was important, and wanted to address it. Thank you. Um, so I wonder if we could talk more now about the institutionalization stage. Um, you know, what can you tell us more about what the establishment of these specialized units looked like in Liberia versus in Cote d'Ivoire? Yes. So in in Liberia, the conversation around the, the creation of the units began quite early. Um, before and people, a lot of people tend to assume that um, it was because Liberia had a woman president, and I like to point out that actually, a lot of important steps were taken before she became president, including the creation of uh, the Women and Children's Protection Section. Um, but so by two thousand and five, the unit had been created, um, and within the, the span of three years. Uh, you have a central directorate in Monrovia. You have um, a great deal of training. First of all, recruitment of women um, into the police force, but training, specialized training around gender-based violence. Um, and having officials who worked exclusively on gender-based violence, which meant that you went into the police station, and even if it was not a separate building or a separate office, there were these officials who worked only on gender-based violence. Um, and when I spoke with them, it be quickly became clear that they lacked the resources. And something as basic as you know, having um, phone chips of uh, phone cards to make phone calls to follow up on cases was a problem. Um, police officers were sometimes paying for, for survivors' medical care. Some of them were paying out of pocket to go to crime scenes, although often the, the survivors' family would have to pay for all of these things. So what became clear was that the training had been done. Um, I mean, the training could have been more, more uh, I guess, intensive, uh, but there was training that had been given to every uh, official within the Women and Children's Possession section. Um, and they had the structures in place. Often the structures were far from what was needed, but there was some structure in place. And they had done this in all counties of the country. Um, and when I, I spoke with the police officers, both male and female, what was clear was that they understood, and this is what, when I talk about the norm being salient, they understood and agreed for the most part that rape was a very serious problem. And that while before the war, but also before the unit was created after the war, they were more willing to hand over rape cases to the family now they understood that that was just not acceptable. It doesn't mean that it wasn't done. It means that they knew and like very clearly and, and deeply that this was something that they should not do. Um, and they had also kind of, I guess, mostly done away with the idea that um, there was serious and not serious rape. Um, that some victims were more victims than others, that they were more deserving of justice than others. Um, I found that these attitudes were just not as, as um, 
common as they seem to have been before the war and immediately after the war. Um, so to me, that that was evidence of um, this norm being internalized, that even if they did not have the resources to always follow up on the case, at least there was the understanding that this is what we should be doing. We know we should be doing this. We are not doing this maybe because we don't have the resources, but we know we should be doing it. And if we had the resources, we would be doing it. So that is what institutionalization looked like. Um, Cote d'Ivoire gender focal points were assigned to some police stations uh, during the conflict. After the conflict uh, in 2014, the gender desk was created with funding from the UN and the European Union. And I think something that was great about Cote d'Ivoire was the funding ensured that buildings, you know, buildings separate such that survivors would come in and not have to walk through um, different rooms full of different people coming from a, for a variety of reasons. But survivors would go to a designated area and uh, speak to police officers who would have had some training. Um, not, not all of them had the required training um, and the, the, the way in which Liberia had a, a specialized course that all of the women and children's protection police officers um, uh, took, it, it wasn't the same thing in, in Cote d'Ivoire. Often someone would have gone to some course, um, some organization had a short course, the UN had a short course, maybe the police force had a short course, and then you know they, they took that course and then they became the person who dealt with gender issues. Um, but even three years after the, the gender desk had been created, uh, many parts of the country did not have gender desks, but also the officials, the police officers assigned uh, to gender desks often worked on other, other issues. Um, and, and to me, that was a very strong indication of the degree to which gender-based violence was prioritized within the police force. Um, and wh when I did speak with, with the police officers in Cote d'Ivoire, I think there was more, slightly more willingness to say, well, maybe there are other ways of dealing with rape that doesn't, um, or that, that don't involve uh, the police. Whereas police officers in Liberia were less likely to say this. And I like to point out that not because they weren't doing it, but just because it was thoroughly understood that this was wrong and should not be done. Thank you. So um, we've kind of already gotten a little bit into street level implementation or the performance of street level officers. But can you tell us more about what the situation looked like uh, at the street level in, in these two countries? Yes. Uh, so what I saw in, in Liberia was that when police or when, when survivors would report cases, they would be recorded and based on whatever information had been gathered, evidence gathered would be passed on to the prosecutor. And something that was less likely to happen was the police deciding that we would make the decision and not the prosecutor. So not, of course, not all cases went to court, not all cases went to trial, but the police were not serving as judges in the police station. They were forwarding these cases to the prosecutor to make the decision. And so it, it meant that in comparison to the pre-conflict period, immediately after the conflict, survivors were more likely to meet officials who would take the case seriously, record it, forward it to the prosecutor. And I mean, that was a major, a major improvement. Um, something that they were also more aware of in both countries was the issue of re-victimization. Um, uh, so I, I spoke about how it, was, it wasn't at all strange that a survivor will be um, 
questioned in 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 public in front of everyone um, and ask, well, you know, what were you wearing? Why were you wearing that? And where did you go? Why, why did you go there? Um, so in in both in both of these countries, the police officers told me that they were more aware and that they had stopped some of these things. A practice that was particularly concerning, among many other concerning practices in Cote d'Ivoire, was they would sit the survivor across from the accused and basically ask them to almost argue it out. And I think the thinking behind that was that the person who won the argument was more likely to be telling the truth. But, I mean, the trauma that will result from being placed in front of your attacker and ask, and like having some form of a debate to prove that you were right. I mean, how, how terrible was that? And so they told me that um, these were things that they had learned. Even, even the people who, had not, who were not um, assigned to gender-based violence kind of had an understanding that we can't be doing these things anymore. However, and I should also say when I spoke with survivors and I spoke with um, activists and counselors, they did say that there was some improvement. So you know, th- th- there was some fact in what the police were saying. And women's rights act- activists spoke up in both Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire said that um, policing had improved. But at the same time, I found that there were many, many, many problems in both countries. I spoke, uh, for example, I spoke um, to a survivor who went to the, the police station in Cote d'Ivoire. She, it was in Abidjan, I believe, and she had reported. And she told me how the police kept uh, the, the, the accused family. I think they were very wealthy people. And she said the policeman in charge of the case kept asking her, are you sure you want to do this? Do you understand how this is going to affect his life? And that is something that we hear all the time in many countries. He has a bright future ahead of him. Do you really want to do this to him? Um, and she, and, and she, she held her ground. But then she said he started asking her very, very um, sensitive questions. And he said, well, how, how did he rape you? Was he standing up? And were your legs in the air? And she said, after that, I was like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. Um, But the only reason she stayed was that she called a counselor at a a local NGO. And the counselor came and stood with her. And she said, you know, this person stood by me. And that was the only reason that I was able to go through with the case. So, yes, improvement, but at the same time, these practices persist in and not as widely as they as as they were, but these practices persist. So w- this is why it was important for me to not speak to only the police officers because not a single police officer said, "Oh yes, I accept bribes," and "Oh yes, I side with the accused." No, but when you speak to the survivors and you speak to the counselors and the social workers, then you get a better picture of what was happening. Certainly. And, you know, as, as I was reading the book and as I'm hearing you speak now, I can't help but think about commonalities with, you know, uh, stories that we hear in the United States and in other countries as well. Um, so I, I can't let you leave without asking you, uh, what are the policy implications of this study? Yeah, so I, I think what one important finding was that Specialized policing makes a difference. And with sufficient training, monitoring, and resources, they can actually greatly improve survivors' experiences of the criminal justice system. And they can ensure that more people get access to justice. Um, it, it was. I was really encouraged to see that, and because when the police in in Africa, the the policing literature tells us that the police was not the police force in many African countries was not created to serve the people, 
but rather to serve um, colonial interests. And we've also, it's also been shown that male police officers tend not to uh, prioritize issues like gender-based violence. But I was very in, encouraged to see that police officers, even in situations where they lack the resources, were committed and they wanted to work and they want a lot of them wanted to do the right thing. And for me, that is that is very encouraging. So even though in both Cote d'Ivoire and Liberia, it is the police force is far, far from where we want it to be in terms of specialized policing. It is definitely better than what existed before the conflict, and it is better than what existed after the conflict, before these specialized units were created. Um, I, I like to, I guess, celebrate incremental changes, um, recognize them, because I think we can learn a lot from these tiny changes. They're, it's far from perfect. It's far from what we want for survivors, but it's an improvement. And so I think the first thing is that uh, specialized policing matters. It makes a difference. And that we need to get both states and international actors to commit to it. One of the problems I saw in, in, in Liberia, in Cote d'Ivoire as well, is that in some, to some people, the specialized units were almost seen as belonging to the UN. Yeah, and, and for me, that is very concerning because at that time, the UN was beginning to pull out of both countries. So if it's not seen, if there isn't this domestic ownership, if the government doesn't see it as a key part of what they're supposed to be doing, what happens when the UN withdraws um, its personnel and the funding or greatly reduces funding? So I think that there needs to be domestic ownership. And... Also important is that women's movements are extremely important actors because they really, they maintain the pressure and they, 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 they do their best to make sure that this gender-based violence is seen as important, um, that the structures are in place to address the problem. In Liberia, they had set up an entire network such that if a, a person reported rape, you know, there was, they will immediately refer you to a legal advisor, to a health, a health um, specialist, to the police. And then there will, be, there will be people following up to make sure that the police were doing what they were supposed to be doing. So the women's movement were important from the, from the creation stage to, to institutionalization, to the daily performance and I think this is important in terms of IR because when we think about implementation, um, I think we don't really recognize the importance that actors like women's movements play in the, the implementation of domestic norms. And what my work shows is that they're extremely important and that, in fact, they are also shaping the norm. And I like to make the point that they are not just recipients of an international norm that they are key actors in shaping how we implement the norm. And you will see that based on what has been done in countries like Liberia, even Rwanda, Rwanda has a much lauded um, specialized unit. That has fed into how specialized policing is being done. And so I, I want to give credit to women's organizations, activists in these countries that through the, through the pressure, through the, the support they provide, a lot of free services they provide, they are also shaping how we implement um, this norm. Something else that I, I think is, is, is important from a, a policy perspective is that there's a need for a very holistic approach to addressing gender-based violence. I think that from the international level, there's a lot of focus and a lot being relative on policing. And, and I will speak briefly about how appropriate is policing, <laughs> but um, there's a lot of focus on policing. But we know that so much happens before you ever get to the police station. And I think that there needs to be a focus on prevention, on changing norms and practices that lead to violence. 
But I also, when violence happens, policing, yes, is important, but also we want to make sure that um, survivors have health care. So I spoke to, for example, survivors in Cote d'Ivoire, and one of the biggest things they wanted was people just wanted help to get on their feet after they had been victimized. I spoke to women who said, I want to leave where I live and move elsewhere because now, and I will never forget this, a, woman, a young woman who said, nobody knows my name anymore. I'm now the girl who was raped. That's now my name. And when I walk through the community, people point at me and say, that is the girl who was raped. And my friends are now known as the friends of the girl who was raped. And she says, I just want to leave this place, but I have no money and I have nowhere to go. And that really underlines the need for a holistic approach to addressing gender-based violence uh, because you know, arresting and even prosecuting and imprisoning incarceration is not enough for most survivors. People need much more than that. The final thing I'd like to say in terms of policy, because we are in a very interesting time, I mean, maybe more in the U.S., um, than in, in countries like Liberia. But there's, there's an important conversation around the police, this conversation around defunding the police. Um, and even within African countries, you ask, how can an institution that was never created to, to protect the people be expected <laughs> to serve the people? So I, I realize that there is a serious tension there in, as in expecting the police to do this job and do it well. Um, but apart from the improvements that I saw in policing, yes, small improvements, but also very important improvements. Um, every survivor that I spoke with wanted their attacker arrested and prosecuted and taken off the streets. And to me, that is very important. Um, you know, I've, I've heard people say, oh, you know, uh, because of certain... Um, I guess, societal uh, arrangements or societal norms, people in, in many African societies uh, do not want the state involved. They don't want arrest and prosecution. They want families to deal with these issues. They want their chiefs to deal with this issue. But I will say this, not a single person I spoke with said, I want my family to deal with this or I want my chief to deal with this. Every single person whose family had intervened, that person was dissatisfied. And that person said, people told me, I regret it. I wish I, you know, I wish I trusted the police enough to go. Or I wish I had known to go to the police. I'm not happy. I'm not happy that this person did this very horrible thing to me. And all they had to do was pay a fine. And I see them walking around the community. Um, the fact that they can go on and do it to other people is something that upsets me. Um, so I did not, my research did not provide support for this idea that victims, at least of sexual violence, do not want their prosecutor, their, their, um, the perpetrators of these acts to be brought to justice. This was not supported by my, um, by my research. I'm so glad you brought up uh, all of these points, uh, Peace, because I, I agree. I think I think the book has a host of implications uh, that people can learn from, uh, again, within certainly African countries, but also beyond uh, that continent as well. Um, and the book has, I, I think, wide relevance to international relations scholars, uh, even those who don't specialize in Africa, you know, any, anyone who's interested in gender, certainly, but also people who are interested more broadly in norms. Um, ought to ought to pick up this book. Um, so we've we've taken up a lot of your time. I just want to ask you one final question. Uh, the book has been out in the world for a little while now. Um, so what are you working on? Yes. So I am now at the tail end of data collection for a project, a collaborative project on women traditional leaders, which kind of came out of this work. Um, uh, because part of what I did, in, especially in Cote d'Ivoire, was going into communities to, to find out who was dealing with rape cases. And in many communities, it was chiefs and other traditional leaders, but almost always male traditional leaders. 
which got me thinking, where are the women traditional leaders and do they behave differently? Do they address these and other problems differently? So my current project is a comparative study of Ghana, Liberia, Botswana, and South Africa of women traditional leaders um, in these countries and how they address uh, problems like gender-based violence, but also how their, their roles, the work that they do, how it's changed over time and how they work with, with the state, how they work with the police. So it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a comparative project of women women traditional leaders and and the work that they do. That sounds fascinating. Uh, well, peace. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Lamise. The book is Peace Media's Global Norms and Local Action. The Campaigns to End Violence Against Women in Africa, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening.